We're going to be picking up where we left off last Sunday, moving into the New Testament, specifically the day of Pentecost. Looking at the Holy Spirit's role, his filling in the New Testament, and uh, what what uh, transition takes place from the Old Testament into the New Testament. You see Old Testament, uh, just to recap, you had specific people that were filled with the Spirit, not everybody. Uh, you had people, uh, leaders like Moses or King Saul. Uh, you had people that were filled with the Spirit, um, tied to specific tasks like Bezalel, uh, crafting things for the tabernacle. Uh, Samson, you remember, the Holy Spirit rushes on him at certain times so he can perform supernatural uh, acts of strength, but it was not a permanent lifelong uh, filling of the Spirit, and it was not a universal meaning uh, for all the people of God. It was just for specific key people that God put His Spirit on for specific tasks. In the New Testament, uh, we see a transition takes place, and uh, before we get to Pentecost, I want to start by reading Joel chapter 2. This is the prophecy that we'll see Peter quotes from um, on the day of Pentecost during his sermon. So, Joel 2, beginning verse 28, it says, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. So you see what he's saying there is, no longer will God's Spirit just be on Moses, you know, Joshua, David, key leaders. Instead, I'm going to pour my Spirit on indiscriminately. Uh, on even the lowliest of people. All Christians, in other words, will have the Spirit of God. Verse 30, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. Uh, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And I think that's a reference to what we see, of course, in, in AD 70, the attack on Jerusalem is kind of hinted at there. Okay, so Joel's prophecy is about this outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh indiscriminately, no longer on key people, no longer on, you know, very few people in the Old Testament. Now it's going to be poured out on all flesh. And so uh, jumping over to Acts now, we see the fulfillment. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, this is Jesus after his resurrection speaking to the disciples. This is right before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. He says, uh, says there, he presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so he's telling them, stay in Jerusalem, because again, you see Joel's prophecy there is connected to Jerusalem specifically. He says, in Jerusalem, this is where this outpouring of the Spirit is going to take place. And so Jesus tells his followers right before he leaves, uh, don't go anywhere yet. Hang out in Jerusalem for a few days, uh, because you know something's about to happen. You're about to be baptized or immersed in the Holy Spirit. And so this is the outpouring of the Spirit that John the Baptist had preached about. Uh, Jesus tells them, stay in Jerusalem, it's about to happen, and it happens for a purpose. Uh, remember, in the Old Testament, we saw being filled with the Spirit was connected to specific tasks. You had leaders, you had judges, you had uh, skilled laborers, uh, key people that were filled with the Spirit, not just because they were special, but because they had a job to do. Okay? In the New Testament, 
it's the same thing. We are all filled with the Spirit because we all have a job to do. Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. So there you see the reason for the filling of the Spirit on all believers now in the New Testament is because all of us are commissioned uh, after we've received that power to go out and, and witness for Christ. And so we are given the Holy Spirit connected to this task of spreading the gospel to all the world. Okay, um, and I take that power, by the, way, by the way, we'll talk about this more next week, not just to be boldness to speak the gospel, but also skill and ability and wisdom that it will take to establish churches, preach the word faithfully, make disciples. It's not just about going out and giving people the gospel. Okay, I think the Great Commission, obviously, that's the goal, but it involves building up healthy churches, discipling people, uh, not just a quick you know, spreading of the gospel. And the Spirit's power is given to each one of us with specific gifts in each local church in order to carry out that uh, kingdom advancement. We'll talk about that more next week. All right, Acts chapter 2, let's see this actually take place. Acts 2 verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And this is referring to the group of about 120, says verse 2. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Uh, this is, by the way, what I take to be, remember John the Baptist said, you, you know, I baptize you with water, but one comes after me that's mightier than me. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Okay, I think that's referring here to the day of Pentecost, where there was some sort of visible fire that was seen. I don't... I can't quite picture what that looks like, uh, but it, it says there that the, there were these um, divided tongues of fire that appeared and rested on each one of them, signifying the Spirit's presence. Anyway, verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, save the questions about speaking in tongues. Uh, we might talk about that next week if we have time. But in this text, it is clear that these disciples about 120 of them, according to the, uh, the, next the previous chapter, they were gathered together there in that upper room, and the Spirit was given to them. And they were given the ability to speak in other languages. These were known languages because of the rest of the story there. Verse 5 says, There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. This is because this is Pentecost. Okay, This is during one of the major feast days in the Jewish holiday when Jews from all around that area would come to Jerusalem. So you have Jews from, you know, even outside of Israel that are gathered back together for this feast day. Verse 6, At the sound, this multitude came together and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And so all of these Jews from all over the, uh, the known world at the time come together, they hear this noise, some commotion that's going on, and they're confused because they're hearing these disciples that are all Galileans, right? They're not from other areas. They're, they're just from this one place. And yet they're speaking to these people in their native languages. Verse 7, they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who, who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native, uh, in his own native language? And then it goes on to list Parthians, Medes, a, a bunch of different groups, areas where people were uh, gathered there. Verse 11, Jews and proselytes, Christians, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Okay, so this was a visible, undeniable sign that confirmed the reality of the outpouring of the Spirit. 
Um, all of these Jews that were there from different places, they were here for Pentecost in Jerusalem, and they're hearing their native languages spoken. Now, this was not strictly for the sake of evangelism. Okay, maybe you've heard this idea that, well, the reason they were given the gifts of tongues is so that they could witness to these people that they otherwise couldn't communicate with. That is not true. Okay, all of these Jews spoke Aramaic. So, so sort of, this is a foreign concept to us in America, but in many countries even today, you see, um, I think in China and in India, they have kind of this, where there's one main language that everybody speaks, right? And then there's individual languages. So everybody speaks two languages. Totally foreign to us in America, pretty much. Um, but, it, it, you know, you had this one language across the whole area, and then you had your specific language from your own native uh, land. And so they all could speak Aramaic. That's why they're here in Jerusalem. It's not like they came to this feast and couldn't understand what was being said in the temple. No, they all could understand. So this was not for the sake of simply communicating the gospel to these people they otherwise couldn't communicate with. Rather, it was a sign. It was a uh, it was given, the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to speak in other languages to demonstrate that Joel's prophecy was being fulfilled and that the Spirit of God had been given. Okay, that was the point. It was supposed to be a sign for them. And so the Jews from all over, they're listening to these Christians speaking, and they're, I mean, obviously they're communicating with one another because they're saying, wait a minute, I'm hearing my language. Are you hearing yours? And they're, and they're confused about what's going on because these Galileans are speaking their native languages. Verse 12, they were all amazed, they were perplexed, saying to one another, these are the people listening from you know, different areas, what does this mean? Others were mocking, saying they are filled with new wine. Uh, verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. So, in other words, all of this that was taking place was a demonstration that the Holy Spirit's power had uh, fallen on them, just like Joel had prophesied. Verse 17, and then he goes on to quote Joel's prophecy. In the last days it shall be, declares uh, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and uh, male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. They shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapors of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, we talked about this some on Wednesday. This is one reason you've got to be very careful with biblical prophecy. Uh, you notice that Peter quotes all of these things, and you're going, wait a minute, did did the moon turn to blood? Did the sun go dark? Uh, well, this is apocalyptic literature. It's not all meant to be taken literally. And so when you read Revelation, Daniel, Ezekiel, or Joel, for example, you see beasts and horns and dragon and women in the sky. Uh, no, that is not all to be taken literally. Okay, so uh, Peter talks to them, explains to them that this is all the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, and then he was on to preach. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, of whom we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And so this phenomenon that, he, that you are seeing, Peter says, is the outpouring of the Spirit that Joel prophesied. It is the Holy Spirit that was giving them the ability to speak in these languages. And of course, you know the rest of the story. He goes on to preach, 3,000 are added to the church. 
and uh, that is the day of Pentecost. Now, going past Pentecost now, what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning, this will probably be as far as we get, is to walk through the book of Acts and just trace the Holy Spirit's activity in the church. We kind of did this already with the Old Testament, right? We looked at different people in the, in the Old Testament that were filled with the Spirit, how the Spirit worked through people and what, what it caused them to do. Let's see now in the book of Acts what the Spirit's filling in the New Testament does. So first, Acts 4, verse 31, says, When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Okay, this is the first real impact that you see the Holy Spirit having on the early church in the book of Acts is that they speak God's message with boldness. They are filled with the Spirit, and one result of that is the courage to speak and declare the gospel. Uh, we saw that, I think, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, with Peter, right? Peter cowers when he's asked if he's with Jesus in Matthew 26, and then in Acts, all of a sudden, he has boldness, and it says because he was filled with the Spirit, he was able to speak boldly even when he was being uh, questioned by the military, not, not the military, the uh, religious leaders that could potentially imprison him. Um, anyway, so boldness to preach, boldness to stand for Christ, that is the first evidence we see of the Spirit uh, throughout the book of Acts. Next. Acts 6, verse 1. We're just going to go in order, chapter by chapter, through the book of Acts. Acts 6. In those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. This would be the Greeks against the Jews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Um, so we've got an issue here where the widows in the church are not getting enough food. Perhaps there's a racial element here where the Greeks are feeling like, you know, you Jews are neglecting our Greek widows or something like that. Verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Okay, this is, um, seems to me that this is the establishment of the office of deacons in the church. So you've got elders, pastors, and then deacons in the church. The elders, pastors, as you see right there, their main job is preaching the word, and the apostles are saying, well, we, we don't want to you know, spend all of our time serving tables doing this administrative work. Uh, our job is to preach, and so we need to appoint somebody to take care of this uh, ministry to the widows. And so they, they say, pick out seven men in the church that are filled with the Spirit, and notice the Spirit and of wisdom. So there's a connection there, we'll see that again in a minute, uh, between the Spirit and wisdom. And so they, they appoint these seven men over this uh, task, verse 4, but we, the apostles are still speaking, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So we're going to focus on our job, uh, figure out some, some deacons to take care of this other role. Verse 5, what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicarnar, Timon, Parmenius, Nicolaitis, proselyte of Antioch. All these are Greek names. Verse 6, they set them before the apostles, they prayed, laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so you see, basically, this worked. It solved the problem. The church was able to go forward. Verse 8, notice Stephen, he's one of the seven deacons that was picked, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Verse 9, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, 
and of the uh, Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Sicily and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Okay, so again, there seems to be a connection between the Holy Spirit being filled with the Spirit and speaking and acting with wisdom. All right, so we've got boldness, we've got wisdom. Now let's go to Acts 8. Uh, this is the famous story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. For sake of time, we're not going to read through the whole thing, but you know, Philip sees a chariot, he's in the middle of the desert, and the Spirit said to Philip, verse 29 of Acts 8, go over and join this chariot. So the Spirit said this to him. I don't know if this means he heard an audible voice, uh, or if he just somehow the Spirit communicated this to him in his mind, uh, but however this took place, it was more than a feeling or an impression. Um, to disobey this would have been to disobey God. He was given clear uh, command from the Holy Spirit to go and join this chariot. Chariot. He does this. Uh, he explains the gospel to the person on the chariot, and he baptizes them right, him right there. And in verse 39, as they were coming up out of the water, by the way, um, good indication of baptism by immersion right there. Okay, They're coming up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. Okay, So the Spirit told Philip, go to this chariot, and then the Spirit whisked him away after the whole deal was done. Now, is that normal uh, today? Should we be expecting the Spirit to do things like that? Certainly God could do that, uh, but I would argue we don't really see that taking place today. At least I've never met anybody that was whisked away by the Spirit, teleported from one place to the other, and I doubt you have either. So it seems to me that as we read through the book of Acts, there was clearly a difference in the outpouring of the Spirit in the early years of the church. It was a unique time, and uh, there were signs and wonders taking place all over the early church, and many quotations, I'm not going to read all of these, but many quotations of the early centuries of church history seem to indicate that the, that explosion of miracles and signs had waned even early on in church history. Okay, I'll just, for example, John Chrysostom around 400 AD said, there is not so much as a trace of that power left, speaking about miracle working abilities. Uh, he's arguing there basically to focus on your sanctification instead of trying to do something miraculous because that power seems to have dissipated. Okay, this is 400 AD, so it's about 300 years or so after the book of Acts and these events of the early church. And he's saying, yeah, that's gone. <laughs> now, Chrysostom was one guy. He, maybe it was still taking place around him on a smaller scale, and he just didn't, wasn't familiar with it. But clearly there does seem to be a difference in terms of the uh, visible and powerful manifestations of the Spirit in the first century. All right, uh, Acts 9. We'll see another role that the Spirit played. As far as Acts 8 goes, um, again, some of that, I don't know how much of that transfers to today, but clearly you see guidance is a role of the Spirit. The Spirit tells Philip, go to this chariot, right? And you see this in other places I'm not going to bring up, like Acts 16, where the Spirit tells the church, uh, send out Barnabas and Paul as missionaries. Like, the Spirit just says that to them. Okay, so this is another role of the Spirit in the book of Acts. Acts 9, verse 31 the church throughout all Judea and, uh, and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it was multiplied. All right, so we've seen the Spirit gives boldness to preach the gospel. The Spirit gives wisdom to speak and to serve, as in the case of Stephen. The Spirit gave direction to Philip, go to this chariot, and the Spirit here provides comfort to the believers as well. All right, Acts chapter 10. This is where Peter is preaching the gospel of Jesus to Cornelius and his family and friends. This is a very key text in the New Testament because it is the first Gentile convert to Christianity. 
Uh, prior to Acts 10, the Spirit had been given to the Jews, and then you see the Samaritans, which are kind of the half-Jews. Uh, but this is where salvation is given to the Gentiles as well, which was a real shock uh, to the early church and to Peter in particular, because they had just assumed Christianity was going to be the second act of Judaism. And so in order to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew first, and then you could get in the door of Christianity. And here we see the first Gentile, a fully non-Jewish person coming to Christ in Acts chapter 10. Uh, the Spirit tells Peter, go to Cornelius' house. He has his family and friends gathered there. And so Peter preaches the gospel to them. Verse 44, as he's preaching, as he's saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. All right, so they're hearing this. They're apparently receiving it with faith and repentance because they're converted here. And the Holy Spirit falls on them. Verse 45, the believers from among the circumcised who had come up with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing, and here's how they know that the Spirit was poured out, they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Um, <laughs> I don't want to keep harping on this. This is yet another good indication uh, why we should not baptize infants. Notice that Peter sees them converted. There's evidence of conversion, and then he says, we can't withhold water from them. They're clearly Christians. Just kind of throw that out there. All right, so in the case of Cornelius, the Holy Spirit fills him and those with him, his family and friends gathered there in the house. And in the moment of their conversion to Christ, uh, as they're hearing and receiving the gospel, the Spirit caused them to speak in tongues, just like the Jewish Christians back in Acts 2 in the day of Pentecost. Okay, why would this happen here? Well, it's to prove to the Jewish people there that Gentiles can become Christians. It's to show Peter that God had opened the door to the Gentiles for them to be saved. And so God gave them this sign of speaking in tongues as a manifestation that these Gentiles were Christians just like they were. And this is what Peter says uh, when he goes back to Jerusalem. He's explaining to the Jewish Christians there, hey, I just saw some Gentiles that apparently are, are saved too. And so Acts, 15, uh, Acts 11, 15 He's recounting this event, and he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just like it did on us in the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And so when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also has God granted repentance that leads to life. Okay, so this visible manifestation of the Spirit in tongue speaking was given to Cornelius and to this group in his house for the same reason that it was given to Paul in Acts, I'm sorry, to Paul, to Peter and the other apostles in Acts chapter 2. Same reason, it was a sign. It was not so they could communicate with people in other languages. That was not the, the, the point of it at all. It was to show in Acts 2 the, that the, Joel's prophecy was taking place, that the Holy Spirit had been poured out, which means. Jesus was the Messiah, and this was the, the evidence of that to the Jews in Jerusalem. In Acts 10, it's a sign to the Jewish Christians that Gentiles had become Christians just like they had. So in both cases, speaking in tongues is a visible manifestation of the Spirit for a specific purpose to signify that something had taken place. Uh, just like in Numbers, when we um, saw the story there of the 70 elders, Remember Moses, uh, God tells Moses, I'm going to take the spirit that's on you and I'm going to put it on these 70 others, right? And then what happens? The spirit comes on them and they begin to prophesy. Well, why? 
to show all the other people in Israel, hey, God's Spirit's on these people just like it's on Moses. And so a very similar thing taking place here. It was a visible sign for the sake of those around them to, to know that the Spirit of God was on these people. All right, uh, Acts chapter 11. Let's see another way that the Spirit works in the book of Acts, Acts 11, verse 27. In these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, one of these prophets named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Okay, so here we have the Spirit giving Agabus knowledge of a famine that's about to come. All right, this is another role of the Spirit in the book of Acts. We see this also in other places where people are warning uh, Paul of his arrest and eventually murder in Jerusalem as he's traveling along. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see that numerous times. So this is what is known as the gift of prophecy. And this is the best example, narrative example, that I can see of what the gift of prophecy is, um, where the Spirit communicated you know, it says that Agabus foretold by the Spirit that this famine was going to come. All right, uh, He's called a prophet in verse 27, and then he gives this prophecy of the coming famine. I think this is a, a useful text about thinking through how to handle prophecy today. If somebody comes to you and says, the Holy Spirit has told me whatever, you know, word of knowledge, whatever you want to call it, here are some criteria to think about. Verse 28, uh, notice that the predicted famine took place. Okay, one of them named Agabus, back to verse 28, stood up, foretold by the Spirit, that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. This is a, kind of an obvious point. But if somebody prophesies something and it doesn't happen, okay, you should not listen to them after that. <laughs> if somebody claims to have the gift of prophecy and they predict something that does not take place, they should no longer be listened to. Uh, there were a lot of these guys uh, about a year ago that were predicting that Donald Trump would be reelected in 2020. This was all over the internet, uh, people predicting this and saying that God had somehow revealed this to them. Well, guess what? It didn't happen. Okay, And when something like that takes place, you should never listen to those people again. In fact, in the Old Testament, those people would be stoned for claiming to have been given a word from God that didn't take place. All right, so the first criteria for prophecy is if somebody prophesies and it does not take place, then they do not have the gift of prophecy. That's called the gift of lying. Uh, verse 29, uh, the disciples determined, after they hear this prophecy, the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Okay, so they, they hear about this coming famine. They send relief to these brothers that are going to be affected by it. Verse 30, they did so, sending it to the elders uh, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Uh, the second criteria in my mind for prophecy is that there is a purpose. Okay, God revealed this to Agabus to tell this church in order that they could do something about it, namely send relief to these brothers that are about to go through a famine. Makes sense why God would do that. Okay, if God told you that Trump was going to be reelected, what on earth are we as a church supposed to do with that information? Why is that even relevant? Okay, so why would God reveal that? Well, in my mind, he wouldn't. Uh, people were given, in other words, prophecy is not a, a magic trick to impress people that you can predict the future. That is not the point of prophecy. People were given messages from God in order to communicate something that he wanted people to do. In this case, again, a famine is coming, so the church says, 
let's send some money and relief to these churches in the area that's going to be affected. And so they send it with Paul and Barnabas as they go traveling so that these brothers will be okay through the famine. So in my opinion, if somebody comes with a word from God, and it's something random that you and I have nothing to do with anyways, uh, I don't think that's a word from God. If somebody comes and tells me who's going to win the Super Bowl next year, okay, <laughs> why would I even care about that? I don't believe God reveals those types of random things. God reveals things for a purpose. It's not a trick. It is a spiritual gift that serves a purpose in the church. All right. Um, let's see. We might have time to do one more. Acts 15. The next role of the Spirit in the early church is in decision-making. Okay, this is the Jerusalem Council. I'm going to have to buzz through this, so hang with me. Acts 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, this is the controversy. Some Christians that were Jews were saying, if we're going to let people like Cornelius, these Gentiles, uh, become Christians, we need to make sure they're circumcised and they start following the laws of Moses. they got to be Jews in order to be Christians. All right, verse 2, and then there's this debate going on because other Christians were, like Paul were saying, no, they don't need to do that. Okay, verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So all the bigwigs in the early church are meeting together to discuss, do we need to make Gentiles be circumcised and follow the laws of Moses, or are they okay as they are? Verse 4, they come to Jerusalem, they're welcomed by the church, the apostles, the elders, they declare all that God has done with them. Some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary, by the way, notice that, some believers, Christians, who belong to the party of the Pharisees. So these are not Pharisees like we think of in the Gospels. These are Pharisees that had been converted to Christ, but they still had some of their old tendencies. They still had some of that legalistic uh, mindset that they had to overcome. Verse 5, they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses, these new Gentile Christians. Verse 6, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by the mouth of the Gentiles uh, they should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. We saw that with Cornelius. Verse 9. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. In other words, we're not saved by the works of the law of Moses, and neither are they. We're all saved by grace, so we do not need to force people to keep the law of Moses. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent. They had nothing to say to this. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they retelled what signs and wonders God had done among them, uh, sorry, through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. So he takes the floor, verse 4, uh, sorry, 14. He says, Simeon has related how God first visited with the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it was written. After I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things from, uh, known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Notice the words, <clears throat> my judgment. James says, this is my opinion on this, right? My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who are coming to Christ and becoming Christians. We should not trouble them 
to keep the laws of Moses, verse 20, but we should write to them to abstain from things that are polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, things strangled, and from blood. Okay, so that's James's opinion on the matter. Abstain from these things, and you Gentiles are good to go. Verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose out, uh, to choose from, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Bar, uh, Barsabas and Silas, <clears throat> leading men among the brothers with the following letter. So they're, they're writing out this letter saying, here's what we've decided. Send this out to the churches. The brothers, this is a, you see the quotation mark. This is all in the letter from here to the end of verse 29. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and, and uh, Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. So he's saying, uh, we've sent these people along with you, um, and they're going to verify what we're about to tell you as far as our decision on this matter of uh, keeping the law, circumcision, those types of things. So here's their decision. Look at this, verse, verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, things strangled from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, do well, farewell. Now, wait a minute. In verse 19, James says, this is my judgment, right? You remember that? He says, here's my opinion on this. And all the people said, yeah, we agree with that. And here in verse 28, he says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burdens than these requirements. Okay, so this was their consensus. This was their decision that they arrived at. And then they send out this letter saying this was the decision of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now, I don't see anywhere in Acts 15 where the Holy Spirit speaks to them and tells them this is what you ought to do. It seems to be very much so not a part of this. Instead, what's happening is they're talking, right? They're, they're presenting arguments and they're coming to a decision. Uh, and yet, they understood that to be the Holy Spirit guiding them. Okay, and so the Spirit's role in the early church, we've seen the Spirit provides boldness to preach the gospel, wisdom to handle issues in the church. He provides comfort and guidance, and here he leads this group as they make decisions. Okay, the Spirit also did more miraculous and visible stuff like speaking in tongues and prophesying. Obviously, those things are there in the book of Acts, uh, but these are some ways that the Spirit works in the book of Acts, and next week we will talk more specifically about our relationship with the Spirit. Obviously, there's overlap here. A lot of these things in the book of Acts, I think, apply to us today. Uh, but we'll talk more about what the epistles teach us um, about our relationship with the Holy Spirit.